This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde wonders if anything will change as GB News is found to have breached Ofcom rules yet again. American writer Kenny Biddle reveals how he became a full-time paranormal investigator and skeptic. And Olympic champion Casta Semenya talks labels, leaked medical records, and how lowering her hormones took its toll on her body. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, home to odd Tory MPs and conspiracy theorists... GB News is a broad church. Except points out Marina Hyde when it comes to those who follow the rules. Read by Evelyn Miller. Imagine how shocked I was to have my free speech endangered by the boss of GB News before the channel even launched. Angelo Frangopoulos was offended by an article I wrote just after the attack on the US Capitol in January 2021 which Rupert Murdoch's Fox News had arguably fomented with its endlessly repeated lies about the stolen election. I questioned the desirability of the UK being saddled with not one, but two new opinion-led news channels, GB News and a Murdoch venture, which would eventually debut as Talk TV. Alas... My thoughts did not please Angelo, who was outraged at my false imagining that his channel would not be impartial. According to him, I had misunderstood Ofcom's due impartiality rules, which do not allow a biased news station in this country. Hmm... Maybe I have also misunderstood the shoplifting laws, which do not allow shoplifting in this country, and yet shoplifters and biased news stations exist. Spool forward in disbelief to this week, where the media regulator Ofcom has found GB News in breach of impartiality rules yet again. 
Biologists will know that along with sloths and anteaters, Ofcom belongs to the order Edentata, toothless mammals. So its comment was, We expect GB News to take careful account of this decision in its compliance of future programming. Quite why it expects that is a mystery given this is the fifth time GB News has been found in breach of rules that Frangopoulos once claimed were existential for any UK news channel. Maybe the problem with GB News is that it talks to itself and is so hyper-elite that it essentially exists consequence-free. GB News is currently the subject of either 11 or 12 further Ofcom investigations – But please don't waste time writing in to clarify, Angelo. I'd much rather you dedicated your time to concluding your investigation into Dan Wooten, who was the channel's biggest rating presenter, until his giggling at Lawrence Fox's aggressively derogatory remarks about a female journalist saw him finally suspended last month. Some had thought Wooten would be suspended earlier, what with claims that he had used a pseudonym to offer colleagues large sums of money for sexual material. But we have to be frightfully careful with these allegations, which he denies, given that Dan has engaged a recherche law firm. I do enjoy the X page of this Griffin Law, where they style themselves as operating out of London, Kent and Washington, D.C., Hopefully, they will sue me over the word recherche. That Wooten story caused quite a splash. Just not in any of the newspapers, newspaper groups or TV channels for which Dan had worked. Which is to say, most of them. Amusingly, not everyone got the memo. The mainstream press must check this out, fumed John Cleese, who is himself soon to launch as a GB News presenter, declaring that failure to check this out would be final proof of their complete corruption. I would ideally like to see Cleese sued by Frangopoulos, who told a parliamentary committee that GB News would not be checking this out. But even they couldn't avoid doing something when the Lawrence Fox incident happened live on air. While Wooten was suspended, Fox was fired, along with fellow GB News presenter and wingnut vicar Calvin Robinson, who voiced support for the duo. Robinson reportedly promptly launched a crowdfunder to pay his London rent and was last heard of on a trip to Disney World. Yet... Does this level of savage farce spare anyone the need to take GB News seriously? I fear not. On the one hand, not a lot of people currently watch it. On the other, its importance seemingly cannot be overstated by some rather interesting figures. The Conservative Party conference featured so many GB News shout-outs that you could almost imagine they were concerted. I do also want to welcome some more friends here tonight, announced Pretty Patel at one point. Our friends that are here, the newest, most successful, most dynamic, no-nonsense news station, and the defenders of free speech. 
That is my friends at GB News. Thank you for everything you do. Just incredible. Honestly, just incredible. Then there was Liz Truss. Thank you for all you do, she declared on stage to a GB News presenter. And thank you for your work on GB News. Because in my view, we need more economics journalism and we need more GB News. Challenging the orthodoxy, broadcasting common sense and transforming our media landscape. So long may it continue. As I say, interesting. On the one hand, what could be more establishment than GB News? a London-based media outlet owned by an investment firm and a multi-millionaire Oxford-educated hedge fund guy who apparently wants to buy the Daily Telegraph. This is a channel employing not only the recently knighted Jacob Rees-Mogg, but also a deputy chairman of the governing Conservative Party, on whose weekly show he can be found interviewing his own MPs and ministers. Anyone to whom that feels anti-establishment, has led a somewhat sheltered life. On the other hand, GB News also showcases the likes of Neil Oliver, a guy who once wandered amiably enough around the coast of the UK for BBC documentaries, and now shares anti-Semitic slash New World Order slash pedo-conspiracy theories and likens Bill Gates to Nazi experimenters as well as calling openly for revolution. To put it very impartially then, GB News is both totally ridiculous and the place a certain stripe of politician or turbo-crank feels at home, perhaps increasingly. Quite what it could be fomenting in a few unchecked years' time is unclear. But a lot of people who should know better do seem carelessly keen to find out. That was Ofcom says GB News is not impartial. But how can that be true? It has every kind of wing not going. By Marina Hyde. Read by Evelyn Miller. Next, paranormal investigator Kenny Biddle has been fascinated by ghosts since his childhood and by his 20s, he was a ghost hunter for hire. Then, in a moment, his whole perspective changed. Read by James Sobel Kelly. When I'm asked to pinpoint the moment my belief in ghosts started to waver, I choose the time I was mistaken for one in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, when I was 27. Until then, I'd enjoyed several years of ghost hunting, and was convinced I'd encountered many supernatural entities. Growing up in the 80s, my interest in the paranormal was piqued by TV shows such as In Search Of and Unsolved Mysteries, which documented cases of unexplained phenomena. In my 20s, I got hooked by the possibility of experiencing the other side and the idea that life continued after death. While browsing ghost stories on the internet, I found a local ghost-hunting group in Philadelphia and joined them on trips to cemeteries and allegedly haunted buildings such as Fort Mifflin and the Eastern State Penitentiary. There were six of us around the same age, all determined to prove ghosts were real 
To us, anomalies in our photos such as glowing orbs or mist signaled spirits, as did any surprising noise caught on cassette. Like most ghost hunters, we operated in the dark, which inevitably fed our imaginations. We'd turn up with cases of equipment we'd seen ghost hunters use on TV, such as electromagnetic field and motion detectors. We had no real understanding of what they did, but a beep or a flashing light had to mean something. Museum staff, owners of old mansions, and worried residents who'd heard strange noises in their apartments would all be told the same thing. Yes, this place is haunted. Some people reacted with fear, others with relief. I knew I wasn't crazy. A paranormal conference in 1999 led to that fateful Gettysburg encounter. We were at the U.S. Civil War battlefield, and one night went out to an area we'd heard was particularly haunted. A ranger had told us even he and his colleagues wouldn't set foot there. We were setting up cameras and tape recorders in some woods when three cars appeared. A group spilled out, waving laser pointers. Annoyed, I marched towards them, shouting and waving my arms. The newcomers stopped dead, backed off, and finally drove away. Next morning, rumors were rife that a group had sighted an apparition. Intrigued, I learned their ghost had emerged from the woodland, screaming unintelligibly in a hollow voice. Are you kidding? I said. That was me. I described the event from my perspective, but they wouldn't listen. Finally, one of them yelled, Stop trying to steal our spotlight! That's when it clicked. How many times had I avoided the obvious explanation, just because I was enjoying the excitement? It was horrible to realize I'd spread misinformation. I started looking into the work of people like Joe Nickel, a skeptical, science-based paranormal investigator. I read up on photography and learned that orbs were caused by camera flash reflecting off microscopic dust particles. Ectoplasmic mist was my own breath rising in front of the lens, and transparent apparitions were the result of long exposures. Devices used to detect energy responded to any electromagnetic field. Those used to communicate with spirits could be set off by two-way radios. Two decades on, I took over from Nickel as chief investigator for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which was set up in the 1970s to challenge the growth in claims of ghost and monster sightings and the efficacy of psychics, mediums, and practitioners of pseudoscientific alternative medicine. I'll pick an unsolved mystery, comb through primary sources like police reports stating as far back as the 1800s, chase first-hand accounts, and visit the sites of historic hauntings, restaging photographs using vintage equipment. I feel genuine remorse for the times I confirmed the suspicions of people who were worried their house was haunted, leaving them scared while I chased the next thrill. Now I gain much greater fulfillment from teaching people how to use critical thinking to interpret the situation themselves. I like to think I'm like Velma from Scooby-Doo, the brains of Mystery Incorporated. I'd love to find a ghost I couldn't explain away, or an alien, or Bigfoot. But they're going to have to work pretty damn hard to convince me. 
That was Experience. I am a full-time paranormal investigator by Kenny Biddle. Read by James Sobel Kelly. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of the episode. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally. Hasta Semenya is the Olympic gold winner whose elevated testosterone levels led people to question her right to compete. With a few choice words for world athletics, the middle distance runner talks about labels, leaked medical records, and how lowering her hormones took its toll on her body. By Tsepo Mokwana. Read by Evelyn Miller. For much of her early 20s, Casta Semenya felt physically sick. The South African runner had risen to sudden global acclaim in 2009 when she won gold in the 800 metres at the World Athletics Championships in Berlin at the age of just 18. It was her first major world competition. But her win was marred by questions of her sex and gender. Given her speed, muscular build and husky voice, some quietly asked whether she was a man. The sport's governing body, the IAAF, known since 2019 as World Athletics, had required Semenya to take gender verification tests the day before the race, with the spokesperson telling the press the rumours, the gossip was starting to build up and needed investigating. Semenya's subsequent victory would mark the start of a decade-long story full of twists and turns that would take her from the top of the World Championships podium to the European Court of Human Rights, and would lead to a career-defining battle between the runner and World Athletics about her right to compete, as well as a monitored medical treatment plan that would leave her feeling, as she tells me today, like the walking dead. Two sets of test results were leaked in the months that followed the Berlin Championships. Blood tests reportedly showed Semenya had three times more testosterone in her system than the average woman. Then, the results of her medical examinations were published by Australian papers, suggesting Semenya was a hermaphrodite, with internal testes and no womb. After 11 months of uncertainty the IAAF announced in July 2010 that they had agreed on a process with Semenya to allow her to compete at elite level. 
She hadn't been able to run a race since August 2009, but had kept her first gold medal. The process was a course of hormonal contraceptives, which neither she nor the IAAF made public. Instead, Semenya says that she had to secretly start taking the hormones at the end of 2009 to bring her naturally high testosterone levels down to a concentration accepted by the IAAF. And it didn't go well. I'd describe the medication's effects like this. You're living every day with a sore body. Your stomach is burning, you're having panic attacks, you're sweating. It, it was crazy. Semenya first used a gel before switching to a contraceptive pill. She tells me this over Zoom, where she can be seen sitting outside on a shaded patio in Johannesburg, in a simple gold chain hanging over a white T-shirt, with her hair braided in her signature cornrows. She looks and sounds relaxed. But she also speaks passionately about what she had to endure early on in her career, shifting quickly from niceties about the photo shoot for this interview to torrents of profanity. At times, she says, while on the hormones from 2009 to 2015, she felt so low she struggled to get up. As a child in the village of Khamasalong, in the remote stretches of South Africa's northernmost province, Limpopo, she had been a natural sprinter, with early dreams of playing professional football. Running at speed was intuitive. On the medication, though, she felt unstuck in her own body. But lowering her testosterone became the only acceptable way to appease the IAAF and keep competing. I had to sacrifice myself to be the best that I am. There were days when I lived in the dark, days where I didn't want to wake up, she remembers. Those are the things that people don't understand when World Athletics says, take this medication, fuck them. Those motherfuckers must go take the medication themselves, then tell us how they feel. She names both IAAF World Athletics President Sebastian Coe, whom she calls this idiot, and the organization's Health and Science Department Director, Dr. Stefan Bermon. They'll say, oh, these medications were well supervised. Fuck it. They don't know shit about that. She quickly follows these fiery statements with a few peppy lines on how she persevered. It's life. At the end of the day, it's life. I have to face it. I have to lift myself up and face that nonsense and negativity. When people try to take you down, you always rise up. When she's not chuckling at childhood memories of fighting for fun or sharing sharp words about world athletics... Semenya tends to slip into motivational Instagram graphic speak, which also abounds in her new memoir, The Race to Be Myself. She will answer a brief question with a broad, sermon-like delivery, invoking a royal we or you, rather than speaking specifically in the first person about what happened only to her. But she swats aside the notion that it might have been difficult to open up in the book, about five years ago, Semenya, her partner and her manager, realised we were ready to tell the story. The real story. Not something that people assume based on what's transpired in the press. Something right from the horse's mouth. 
The scrutiny, ridicule and sometimes abuse she faced is shocking to recall. In 2009, after placing sixth in the race that kick-started Semenya's career, her competitor, the Italian runner Elisa Kuzma, said, For me, she's not a woman. Then IAAF General Secretary Pierre Weiss clumsily said in July 2010, She is a woman, but maybe not 100%. After years of deflecting questions about her sex and gender, Semenya wants to make one thing clear. She is a woman. Semenya is not transgender and has never claimed to be. She writes in the book of being born with a vagina and growing up as a girl. Sure, as she hit puberty, she noticed she wasn't filling out with the usual softness of women in her family, including four sisters. In this world, we're all different. We shouldn't question how we look or how we speak. And soon she's off on an impassioned sermon. Once you start questioning yourself, you'll never get an answer. You'll never know the reason why you have that huge nose or a big forehead. Those are the things that you're made with. You should embrace them. But instead of that, people in our society start questioning what women should look like because they want women to look a certain way. That's the story that's going around with me. Well, it's a bit more complex than that. There's really no way to talk about this without teetering on the edge of what should be part of Semenya's private medical record and what ought to be public. Since the test result leaks in 2009, Semenya has been called intersex, someone whose body is typically neither male nor female, by the media and gynaecologists. In 2011, the IAAF categorised her as a woman with hyperandrogenism, where your body naturally produces more testosterone. The idea is that the elevated testosterone crosses over into the male range, giving athletes running from 400 metres to one mile an unfair advantage. Testifying for the IAAF at the Court of Arbitration for Sports, CAS, case, Paula Radcliffe said that competing against women with elevated testosterone levels makes the competition unequal in a way greater than simple natural talent and dedication, adding that other athletes shared her views. As of 2018, the IAAF, World Athletics, now prefers to use Athletes with Differences of Sexual Development, DSD, an umbrella term for conditions that make someone's sex development atypical. With that many categorizations flying about, how does Semenya identify? I don't fit into those terms, she says, plainly, staring down the lens after I mention both intersex and DSD. Those are the media's own terms. I'm an African, I'm a woman, I'm a different woman. That's the only term I can use. Other labels feel, to her, like a European idea to easily categorise people. This one is intersex, this one is this, this one is that. That's their own belief, it's not my belief. If I have a disorder, I don't give a shit about that. The disorder doesn't define me as a woman. Disorders don't make you less of a woman. You're just different. After returning to the racetrack from 2010, Semenya says she had to dig deep to keep going. Living with the side effects of the hormones, she continued to race 
and often to win, at Olympic and World Championship level between 2011 and 2015. In that time, it wasn't an easy journey, but I had to make it look easy. I had to learn how to enjoy that, how to live with it, regardless of what it made me feel and how it made my body change. That didn't matter. What mattered most was me running the race, pissing the IAAF off, making sure that I won medals and got all those prizes, making sure I've never failed. They tried to take me down, and I never failed. And fair enough. She did win two golds, bumped up from silver medals after the original champion, Russian Maria Savanova, was stripped of her 800-metre gold medals at the 2011 World Championships and 2012 Olympics, after there emerged clear evidence she had been doping. During those years, Semenya didn't win everything and was sometimes accused of throwing races to avoid stirring up more controversy. But that was partially down to how sluggish the medication could make her feel. Even the average female can't always live with hormonal contraceptives which can create blood clots, she says, referring to a risk flagged by a drug agency to GPs in advice from 2014. By requiring female athletes to take medication, organisations like World Athletics know what they're doing. That medication is no good for anyone. It's no good for anyone's health. Never. Plus, even athletes in peak condition can lose. Her testosterone doesn't make her invincible, she says, remembering an early loss in Botswana in 2008 before she was taking contraceptives. In response to these claims, World Athletics told The Guardian, The treatment was proposed by the athlete's treating physician and agreed by IAAF experts. The treating physician was in charge of the clinical and biological monitoring, which was done on a regular basis. The physician was also in regular contact with Dr. Berman and the IAAF experts to report any possible problems or side effects. No major side effects, other than the classical withdrawal symptoms, which usually consist of flushes and sweating episodes, were reported at that time by the treating physician. The process, initiated post-2009, was a mutual agreement between the athlete, the athlete's lawyer, the athlete's medical team, and the IAAF legal and medical team of experts. The whole process, under regular supervision of the athlete's treating gynaecologist and endocrinologist, was heavily reviewed and scrutinised by both parties. Semenya's fortunes changed in 2015. A temporary CAS ruling suspended the IAAF's hyperandrogenism rules for two years. Suddenly, she was unshackled. She picked up an 800-metre gold at the Rio Olympics in 2016 and a 1,500-metre bronze at the 2017 World Championships. Some of her competitors spoke publicly about the ruling, including Team GB's Lindsay Sharp, who said after the Rio final that the rule change had made things more difficult for her to compete. But Semenya was elated. I said, OK. Then I stopped taking the hormones. From that day, I was like, you know what? I'm never going to take this shit again. And she scoffs. It's poisonous, man. I want to live a good life and it didn't matter anymore. Even if tomorrow they said the rules were going back, I'd never take that shit. 
She seemed unstoppable. That feeling wouldn't last long. Semenya was born Mahadi Kasta Semenya in January 1991, in a village she cheerily describes as dusty and traditional. Now it's modernised. They have electricity, they have running water, and teens constantly scroll through social media on their mobile phones. But as a young girl, she and her siblings, Weni, Nico, Olga, Muriel and Ishmael, all had to muck in. The girls would gather firewood over which to cook and would walk miles to collect water. When Castor didn't feel like doing household chores with her sisters, she'd make them chase her down. She could always outrun them. We'd plough the fields and prepare our own, she remembers. We had no refrigerator, so we'd dig deep in the earth to store food. The fresh meat we'd eat would be whatever chickens or cows we'd slaughter, or we'd dry our own meat. Her sisters could tell she wasn't quite like them, but they let her get on with it as she spent hours running around with her male cousins rather than cooking and cleaning with the girls. They understood me, even back then when they were protective of me. The same applied when Semenya realised she was attracted to girls rather than boys as an adolescent. In the book, she writes about her first kiss with a girl she calls R. But when I press for details, she says she can barely remember the baby kiss. She's adamant that she doesn't have a formative coming-out story. I don't remember myself hiding the person I am. What you see with me is what you get. Outside her family, she got used to adults saying she wasn't a regular girl, years before becoming an athlete. People might have been like... Ah, you, you're more like a boy. And I'd say, yes, that's how I am. That's how I live my life. That's how I'm going to be. You take it or leave it. If someone would say something, I'd go, what are you going to do about it? Because I am what I am and I'm not going to change. If she needed to, she would defend herself with her fists. She jokes in the book about loving a good fight and initially learning to speak English with a lot of swear words. It's just how she was, she insists. A football coach at school noticed her speed when she had left Rahmasaslong as a young teen to live with her paternal grandmother in the small town of Furley, about 60 kilometres northwest of Limpopo's capital, Bolokwane, and a four-hour drive northeast from Johannesburg. He suggested she start running. By the time she was on the regional youth running circuit, She knew both her prowess and her appearance made her stand out. There, aged 15 or 16, she met a fellow runner called Violet Rasaboya. She was five years older than Semenya and misgendered her on their first encounter in a changing room. In the book, Semenya writes, Me and the runner locked eyes. And that's when she said it. What are you doing in here? What's a boy doing in here? This is the ladies' facility, she said. Her voice sounded like a loud whisper. Ten years later, that woman would become her wife. Today, she and Rasaboya have two daughters, Oretile, four, and Orabile, two. They coach young runners at a club they co-founded and live in Pretoria. At her peak, whether on medication or not, 
Semenya could make the final stretch of her speciality 800-metre run look easy. Because I like exploring. Middle distance is that combination of distance, speed, power, and all these things, she says. Give her the time, and she could talk about running at length. But when I'd run 800 metres, it was easy. It felt like nothing. The 1,500 metres, which she calls the Thou Five, was more challenging. At 800 metres, usually run as two laps, I didn't really dig deep to understand it, and I didn't have to work that hard to master it. As she puts it, it was one of those events that found me. Before we speak, I watch clips of her medal-winning races. In video after video from London in 2012 and Rio in 2016 to the 2017 World Championships in London, she often hangs back at the start, breaking into her kick in the final stretch and steaming towards the front with about 100 metres to go. But then, in 2018 the IAAF halved the previous testosterone threshold for female athletes with DSD. It commissioned research that it said showed women with hyperandrogenism had an unfair advantage in distances between 400 metres and one mile. Semenya wasn't surprised by the new rules. She'd known Lord Coe had seen her run at the African National Championships in June 2016, She had won the 800 metres, 1,500 metres, and as part of the 4x400-metre relay. And after that, he had told the press that the IAAF would need to go back to CAS and will treat this sensitively. Semenya says, Remember, I have a legal team, so I knew it was coming. The minute Sebastian, in 2016, started making these lousy comments and being dramatic, I told my legal team, there's a storm coming. Sebastian hinted at it, and he made sure to do it. But it's funny, because he does it in a cheap way. He's a very cheap man. She is withering about the World Athletics president, linking the public discussion about her body to Coe's own private life. I don't know his sex drive, I don't know his testosterone levels, I don't know his what. In any case, the ruling came into immediate effect from the 1st of November 2018, requiring female athletes with DSD to lower their testosterone to the required level for six months before competing and to maintain it for as long as they wish to run at distances from 400 metres to one mile. Semenya eventually took the decision to the European Court of Human Rights. She was at the airport in Paris in July when her lawyers called to say she'd won. The court ruled that Semenya had been denied sufficient institutional and procedural safeguards to allow her to have her complaints examined effectively. At the end of the day, this is a 50-50 thing, she says. We walked into that battle knowing those would be the odds we could win or we could lose. She felt somewhat vindicated, but not happy. Ultimately, the ECHR ruling is about her human rights being violated, rather than her right to compete. It doesn't change the World Athletics rules, now endorsed by CAS, and means she hasn't run in a World Athletics-sanctioned 800 metres competition since June 2019. 
Semenya got a degree in sports management in 2021 when she realised her running career might be curtailed. And she has commitments under a Nike sponsorship alongside the regular demands of raising young children. In her downtime, she loves listening to Ama Piano, South African deep house and Afrobeats, and watching sports on TV. I'm all about action films too. Anything about guns, I watch. Anything about heists, I watch. She's a fan of the Bourne films, starring Matt Damon, and action blockbusters. You know, Tom Cruise, The Bourne Legacy, we watch them all. The Fast and the Furious is, she says with her hee-hee-hee of a laugh. I watch Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis, Van Damme in just about anything. Jackie Chan and Jet Li when it comes to martial arts. I love them. Hers has been a strange, if accomplished, career so far. Though her guard is down today there are still hints of how she has had to steel herself against the way she is perceived. Russia's Savanova, who came fifth in the 2009 800 metres in Berlin, told reporters to just look at her, gesturing at Semenya's physique. That race's bronze winner, Britain Jenny Meadows, later said she had watched her fellow athletes staring and laughing at Semenya. Now the South African frequently says she doesn't care about how she has been treated or how she has been spoken about by fellow athletes whom she has beaten in the past. And yet, she still felt compelled to write the book. Surely she hated her confidential medical history being made public without her consent. I did not care about my medical reports being leaked, she says. We know about people who can be born with small hearts or without a liver, and she chuckles again. A woman can be born without an ass. A man can be born with a small dick. A pause. There are people out there who are born with internal testicles. There are people who are born with high testosterone. But they should embrace that. There's nothing wrong about it. Other athletes with DSD affected by the 2018 ruling have said as much including Burundian Francine Nionsaba, Semenya's runner-up at Rio, and Kenyan Margaret Nareira Wumboy. In a statement, World Athletics said, World Athletics, formerly IAAF, has only ever been interested in protecting the female category. If we don't, then women and young girls will not choose sport. That is, and has always been, the Federation's sole motivation. If you want to hide the person you are, you're imprisoned, Semenya says. You'll always live your life holding yourself back, going, if people saw this, what would they think? No, stuff that. Be yourself. It's okay to talk about how different you are. Finally, she concedes. Yes, I'm not happy about how they revealed it with me, I should have been the one to do that, but they've done me a favour at the end of the day. Yes, they've done me a favour. She smiles. And now I can live my life without looking back. That was Casta Semenya. How would I label myself? I'm an African. I'm a woman. I'm a different woman. By Tsepa Mokana. Read by Evelyn Miller. 
Before you go, we wanted to tell you a little bit about Guardian Jobs. Whether it's flexible working, shared values, salary, Guardian Jobs can help you find a company that ticks all your boxes. With high-quality roles in sustainability, government, social care, charity and education, Guardian Jobs is the home of jobs for a better tomorrow. Search Guardian Jobs to find your next role. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Evelyn Miller and James Sobel Kelly and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.